the white chocolate macadamia cream cold brew is back at Starbucks. One sip, and it will have you feeling your summertime vibe. Cold brew, signature macadamia cream cold foam, toasted cookie crumbles. Order yours on the app today. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. It's amazing how something that is complicated and intimidating suddenly becomes less intimidating if you're using an app and your phone. I mean, dating, right? There's that. Ordering food, uh, checking books from a library. I do all of those things. I mean, except for dating because I don't date anymore. But I do all of those things more now than I used to because it just feels easier to do it via your phone. And Betterment does that for financial advising. It's a service designed to help improve customers' long-term returns and lower taxes for retirement planning or building wealth or any other financial goal. They use advanced investment strategies and technology to deliver these solutions to more than a quarter of a million customers. And they provide personalized financial advice for your financial planning needs. Tracking your investments shouldn't be confusing or frustrating. And Betterment strongly believes that managing your wealth should be an easy and enjoyable experience. Again, even though the underlying task is the same, it feels easier and more enjoyable because the way you're doing it and the tools that they're giving you to do it. They give you a clear view of your net worth when you sync your outside accounts, such as your bank accounts and other investments. And they show you how much your outside brokerage accounts are costing you in fees and in uninvested cash. Now... Investing involves risk. But with friends like these, listeners can get up to six months managed for free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash with friends. Again, that's Betterment.com slash with friends. Betterment. Rethink what your money can do. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a podcast about difficult conversations and differences. And we have actually a spot-on segment today having to do with relationships and politics. Uh, Noah Rothman, an associate editor at Commentary, and he's uh, a never-Trump guy, but kind of a maybe-Trump-will-shape-up guy. I don't want to call him the most conservative never-Trump person we've had on, because that would be an insult to some of the conservatives we've had on, but he's the most sympathetic never-Trump person we've had on. And I thought he would be good to help a listener with a problem she's having with a friend of hers. Uh, They um, have become estranged uh, due to the politics of the day. That is going to be our third segment. Coming up first, two segments on the Comey testimony. Now, I have a personal kind of rule when it comes to with friends like these that I want to avoid the news of the day, in part to keep these podcasts evergreen, and in part because, you know, news of the day gets heated. And uh, this is a cool podcast, hopefully, emotionally cool. I want to give everyone, including myself, a break um, from the heat that the news tends to generate. But, you know, 
with the fate of the Republic at uh, hand, I thought that we should go ahead and talk about Comey and two things relating to him specifically. First, Rick Wilson, an official friend of the pod and Trump agonist. He will talk about how he thinks the Comey testimony will play with, uh, you know, the Trump tribalists. It's not a very uplifting conversation, but I think you might gain some insight. I know I did. And we're also going to talk to Quinta Jurecic, who is an associate editor at Lawfare, but she comes on the show to talk about something she was writing about in her personal capacity, mainly on Twitter. It's where I ran into her, uh, having to do with something that if you listen to Pod Save America this week, you know I'm interested in, which is the fact that Comey's testimony and the reactions to it, and in fact, Trump's reactions to Comey, fit the shape of a sexual harassment um, or sexual assault narrative. I, I, I think any woman uh, who paid attention to both, again, his testimony and Trump's behavior as described in the testimony, and even the way that Comey's testimony was received by Democrats and Republicans alike, there was this very eerie and troubling echo of what it's like to be a target of a sexual predator. So I thought that was worth unpacking. And of course, if you listen to the whole thing, I promise there's an Easter egg at the end of the show. Coming up first, Rick Wilson. So, Rick, how are Republicans responding to Comey's testimony? He always vindicated he's innocent. It's all over. It's all done. This was a false fake news media narrative. You know, they, 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 don't understand two big things. One, that Comey is a is a guy who who structured this statement, the testimony, very carefully to not step on what Moore is doing, and two, that he he left enough landmines and enough and enough contingency planning in this thing to to ensure that this you know the the five minute blush of oh there was nothing there it's all fake news doesn't last. Do you know Comey at all? I do not know Comey. I do not know him. I've never met him. Um, I know some other folks that are that are uh, long-term FBI folks, and and you know, I, I knew from back in the Bush days there was a little controversy on the whole uh, 702 question back in the day when he was acting AG for for that temporary period. But the, the, the folks I know at the FBI are are long-term and professional guys, and and. It, they they viewed him with remarkable uh, a remarkable degree of affection and and regard. Yeah, I get the I get the sense that he's he's incredibly well. I mean, all the stuff that that we heard when he got fired, like the FBI, you know, agents, like the the rank and file, seemed to really really like him. In fact, he he does mm-hmm. seem to be the kind of person that in a different universe, a lot of Republicans would like. He is the law and order, just the facts, ma'am. Sir. Yeah, and, and back when back when Republicans embraced the rule of law, um, <laughs> now we have apparently completely abandoned for for executive fiat and authoritarian whimsy. Yeah. <laughs> well, the reason I wanted to talk to you though, I, I, I we could probably just rehash the testimony and be very amusing for both of us because um, right. he he was. I mean, lawyers have to be good writers often. Or good lawyers mm-hmm. or good writers, and he is quite the wordsmith, right? Um, he 
incredibly wonderful turns of phrases that I already ordered my Lordy, I hope there'll be tapes shirt. <laughs> Lordy, I hope there are tapes. It's already a t-shirt. I, I already ordered it. Um, but I wanted to talk to you sort of as like a, a red state whisperer a little bit because mm-hmm. so for those of us that, that are already suspicious of Trump, you know, uh, who, whether or not we right. consider ourselves Republican or Democrat, conservative or, or liberal, this was fucking devastating, right? Like the... Former FBI director called the president a liar on multiple occasions. Yeah, not equivocally. That's a vague turn of phrase, but, you know, that's not true. He is he lied. He used the word lie. He lied. And he also, he did not, he declined to characterize whether or not what happened was obstruction of justice. But he said, the president wanted me to stop the investigation. <laughs> and that, that's the angle, by the way, where we're... where. where you could see uh, Mueller playing out, or you could see the Mueller situation playing out, and Comey thinking it through. Right. Comey thinking it through longer term than the Trump people are thinking things through. Well, they because they heard they heard oh it wasn't obstruction or or he wouldn't say it was obstruction, and Comey obviously wanted to make sure that he's not an obstacle or 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 a stumbling block for for Mueller's investigation of obstruction. And for Mueller's investigation of of all things Russia, he wanted to make he, he was very carefully phrasing his responses in a way that that sounded to me um, like he he knew where some of the land, the landmines would be in a major investigation like that, and he was being very cautious to um, to not trigger any of them, and so that he could he could allow um, the special counsel to continue the work that they're doing. Yeah, so we saw the same thing. Now I'm yep. curious, those who view the world through red-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. And I'm less curious about the con- Congress and, and, and those idiots, because they're, they're just going to work on talking points. They're going to do sure. whatever they need to do to, to get their agenda through, um, which I think is a fault. We and I can agree that that's actually probably itself folly because Trump betrays everyone. But anyway... However misguided, <laughs> however misguided the Republicans are with their spin, what do you think, you know, folks are thinking about this? Well, I, I think that this is going to come down to something that, that has to do with attention. And, 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 you know, the honest answer is people like us pay attention to stories like these intensely. The background noise of, of, of Trumpism overall will be to forgive anything he does or says, and, and they will just reflexively go and say, okay, well, Rush and Fox say it's this, and everybody else in the world may say it's that, but, but I believe in Donald. And so you know, they're going to they're gonna stick with that narrative. It's, oh, he's exonerated, nothing is wrong, what, what Russia story, what, what, what coercion, et cetera. We're going to debate a lot about you know, the word hope because they're going to say that that word doesn't mean that that word had no intent behind it. Mm. So I, I think I think the red state folks will be very, working very hard to try to find any vindication on this and any any excuse to say, oh, this is not a big deal for a simple reason. They almost never have a good day. Every single story and revelation that keeps rolling out and rolling out about Trump's behavior before the Russia story, during the Russia story, related to the Russia story, all those things get worse and worse and worse. It never gets better. This for them is a is a reed to cling to as they as they dangle off the cliff of, of 
of the, the growing problems that Trump has around this story. Yeah, I was worried you were going to say that because um, <laughs> I, I think you're right. It's something um, Favs and I talked about a little bit for, for their show, which is that we're so tribal in our views of Trump that that's what comes first, right? You belong to yep. the Trump tribe and therefore your opinions are formed through that belief, not looking at what happened and then forming your belief. And to a certain degree, there's the anti-Trump tribe, too. Um, we'll totally cop to that. Trump. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I, mean, yeah I, I completely, I completely acknowledge that there are plenty of times where where I see people that, that I agree with in this particular fight, you know, getting out ahead of their skis because, you know, the the, the, the I hate him as vigorously as anybody, um, <laughs> and maybe more than most. Um, but I try to be cautious and not declare that that you know that I know things that I don't know or that I that I'm putting pieces together that I can't legitimately put together. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always sort of cautious about that. And I always sort of counsel people that, you know, the, the fact basis alone on most, on most of these questions is bad enough. His actual behavior is bad enough. Um, don't, don't over, don't overshoot the mark um, just because it reinforces the tribal, you know, and I, it's like, it's like people ask me very frequently, like how is Paul Ryan, how deeply is he involved with Russia? I'm like, He's not. Stop. Mm. Don't try to make everything, you know, the, you're not going to knock out the top hundred leaders in the Republican line of succession. <laughs> you're just not. Um, and, 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 but I do think, I do think that desire of, of our tribal nature now and our, our very insular kind of, of, you know, two party hermetically sealed news environments um, has become uh, has become something that makes it harder and harder to 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 see how news in the in the old days would have been would have mediated this kind of situation would have would have would have you know uh, you would have seen the the news ecosystem would have percolated through this and and all those dynamic tensions inside of it would have given you a sort of general public consensus and now it's going to divide out where 80% of the Republicans believe X and 80% of the Democrats believe Y and never the twain shall meet. Yeah. <laughs> that just sort of gets us back. Sorry, I wish I could be more chipper about that. No, I'm, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about that lately myself. I mean, as, as invigorating as I found Comey's testimony, because there is something very stirring about mm-hmm. – seeing someone speak the truth as you understand it and someone who has such clear devotion to his idea of the truth. Like the FBI has, you know, a checkered past, let's be honest. Like it's not the, you know, purest institution in American history. There's some problems with the FBI. But Comey's vision of the FBI is one that's hard not to get a little teary over, you know. Right. And Comey's Comey's, you know, FBI is the is the FBI of the modern era. Where it is much more, it is, it is much less about you know putting down, uh, you know the 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 the, the 60s the domestic insurgency right. stuff, and much more about like financial crime enforcement and anti-terrorism things. And it may not be perfect, but but you know the in execution few things are. Right. But his ideal of it is something that is aspirational, and I think 
I think, laudable no matter what your part. And I agree. Like his vision of it, that's what I was sort of trying to say, is that his vision of it is one I can get behind. Like we may disagree, right. quibble some about some of their tactics, about some of what they do, but his vision for it as a, as a you know, place of justice um, is a really American ideal. And and so, yeah, I mean, I found his testimony incredibly invigorating. Like I was glued to the TV. I was like doing fist pumps, you know, well, not quite that, but sort of. I know? think we all were. Yeah. And I bought the T-shirt. Um, but, you know, talking to you, thinking about it as I walked over to the studio, I was beset upon by the common feeling, I, I, like a feeling I've had all too often these days, which is that, LOL, nothing matters. <laughs> like, LOL, nothing matters. It's true. I mean, and look, oh. the, the, the idea that the idea that there's going to be any moment where the clickservatives um, who have monetized Trump uh, and who, who, who are going to oppose anything that opposes Trump, even if even if Trump is riding roughshod over every supposed conservative value, these guys are never going to break. I joke about it a lot. You know, his whole shoot a guy on Fifth Avenue joke, I, I keep escalating it. It's, you know, he could eat a live baby on the White House lawn and they would still go, yeah, uh, this is. That baby just, had it um, coming, man. That baby cried. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, this was a delicious baby. <laughs> it was a bad ombre. It was a bad baby. <laughs> this baby was a bad ombre. I don't know if this is a dreamer. It been. <laughs> oh, God. Stop. We should stop. It could get so much more gross. Dreamers, the other white meat. <laughs> oh, oh, Rick. Stop. <laughs> Well, we're not Bill Maher here, okay? I haven't gone that far. All right. I actually, I'm trying to think of a way to bring us back to some kind of hope, but I guess here's what I will, I, I will say about what I, I mean, LOL, nothing matters. It's, it, right. that's how it feels. And it's also true that the pace of this thing, it feels like it should be fast, right? Because the news cycle is so, uh, to the nanosecond. Right. But the wheels of justice turn really fucking slow. And that doesn't change. Slowly. That doesn't mean they're not turning. That's and, correct. There's, a, you know, as, as in fact, one of my one of the guys that I know who's an FBI person um, said to me, he said, listen, you got to remember the duck theory of the FBI. It may look calm on the surface, but there's a lot going on underneath the water line. And and I think that that I, I think. I think that there are a couple things that that a lot of Washington folks are missing. First off, the counterintelligence side, the National Security Division of the FBI, is a is even more of a straight laced, um, uh, you know, relentless kind of law and or kind of kind of enforcement and kind of an investigatory body than 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 most people have even like fully considered. And if they have a thread, and they have a lot of threads, as Comey came out today and said very clearly, you know, one of the fundamental things that Trump has insisted on the entire time, there was no Russia involvement. Russia has nothing to do with this. We don't even know who the Russians are. It's a 400-pound fat guy in New Jersey. Um, Comey, once again, as the intelligence services all have, came out today and said, yes, it was the Russians. They were involved in trying to hack and manipulate our election. You know, the, 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 getting that established very quickly out of the gate today is something that got lost in the shuffle of every all the other drama. But that's a really important factor in this. Yeah, it's a really huge um, 
relevant moment in this in this testimony today to remind people that this isn't some phantom. The Russians the Russians attempts to manipulate and 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 hack and 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 cause chaos in our elections and in our in our you know small d democratic process. Um, they were real. They were completely substantive, and we weren't making it up. Donald Trump and his team denied for ages that there was anything at all, that Russia had done anything at all um, in this election. Yeah. You know, and it, 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 it's also a kind of a thin read that, you know, that saying, oh, well, Donald Trump isn't personally under investigation um, uh, on a counterintelligence investigation. But, you know, Richard Nixon didn't personally burgle the Watergate office building. And also, Comey kept, as Comey kept pointing out, the reason why he wouldn't say that is because it could change. You know, correct. Like, correct. It could change. He could become. And also he insisted like it's his campaign. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah. it's so, it, it, of course, like he, he felt uncomfortable. Like I it, it's, it, I felt like, again, we could do we could analyze just the testimony, I think, for a while, because like Comey's literalism was is both, you know, his yeah. saving grace and also a problem because he was really focused on the literal meaning of are you in, under investigation? Right. 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 And it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, it, he, he was asking. He was answering the specific question he was asked. Am I personally, you know, the subject of this investigation? And and there are four or five ways to parse that question. And I'm sure that Jim Comey, you know, gave his lawyer type legalistic answer. And Trump grabbed the hold of it like, yes, thank God, it's not me. <laughs> So. <laughs> it could be a satellite. Who knows? I want to return to the idea, though, that, that the wheels of justice are turning or moving under the surface, mm-hmm. depending on whether you like your your uh, justice to be a mechanical or a duck or a mechanical duck. Um, sure. <laughs> but uh, that is happening. And, you know, we some liberals and conservatives have come to really distrust the deep state. And that's that that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is an institution and institutions right. matter. Like institutions are how we keep the shape of democracy. It's not individual people. And the institutions of justice and law enforcement in this country are still working, mostly the way that they should be. They are still functioning. They are still working. And we may not like the fact that they're not producing a result a minute or, you know, immediately having, you know, the the, the crushing blow against Trump in the final, the final, you know, the final death dealing moment and saying, you know, we hear your corruption and your, your connivance with the, with the bad guys is exposed. You know, we may not like the speed of it, but you know, again, if, if Republicans uh, to, to use, to stay on my side of the fence for a second, um, you know, believe in the rule of law, you have to let the rule of law play out. You have to let the whole thing happen. You can't just, you know, you can't, you can't just press the accelerator down and say, let's go get them. We're going to end this thing now. You, you, you don't get that. Um, you don't get that particular option if you want to believe in the, in, in going through the process of, uh, of of trying to sufficiently explore these questions to either uh, you know condemn or exonerate the president and his people. And I'm going to let that be our last word with you for for now because it seems like the okay. most hopeful we're going to get. But. Rick, uh, I appreciate you calling in. As always. You are definitely a friend of the pod, and we will check in with you again soon. Thanks so much. Let's do it. Good talk to you, Anna. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. I'm going to be honest. It is still something of a shock for me to think of myself as a small business person. 
which I am. I'm a small business person, and therefore I'm a business traveler. Thinking of myself as a business traveler, I mean, I don't, I think of business travelers as the people who like juggle points and who wear suits on planes. And I don't know, they're grownups and I'm plenty old enough to be a grownup, but I don't feel like it. But I am a business traveler, which is why I use Upside. Upside is for people like me. I'm a business traveler, but I work for myself, so I need to save money wherever I can. And at Upside, you save money on travel and you get a free Amazon gift card worth hundreds of dollars every time you travel. You get savings and a big gift card. And here's how they do it. They bundle your flights and hotels together for one low price. Bundling saves money, especially on business travel, and so they can give you the Amazon gift card. You save money, your company, especially if your company is you, saves money, and you do keep all your miles. And right now, when you use my code FRIENDS, you're guaranteed a free $100 Amazon gift card your first time using the service. My code FRIENDS, it gets you a $100 Amazon gift card. How can you not do it? Upside for business travelers who maybe don't even think about themselves as business travelers. Save big on travel and get a big gift card every time. Upside.com. A minimum purchase is required and see the site for complete details. But use my code FRIENDS, upside.com. Quinta, so you're an associate editor at Lawfare, but I wanted to have you on to talk about something that you and I both uh, really gravitated uh, to as a theme in the Comey testimony, uh, which is how familiar it seemed to anyone that is thought about or talked about or experienced what it's like to be the target of a sexual harasser. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're not the only ones. I, I started to see this all around. And it, and it kind of started with um, the headline, uh, you know, Comey tells Sessions, don't leave me alone with Trump. Right. Which mm-hmm. to, to which we women same, you know, <laughs> And that was kind of funny and, a, and a, a little jarring, but funny. But then so Comey's testimony comes out and it starts to be even more, for lack of a better word, graphic. What leapt out at you from the written testimony? Well, yeah. So I would actually say my I first noticed this uh, thanks to my boss, the editor in chief of Laffer, Ben Wittes, who wrote at length about a conversation he had with Comey where Comey discussed the the now famous uh, curtains incident right where Comey stood against the curtains in the blue room trying to keep Trump from noticing him and then Trump did notice him and pulled him over for a hug unwanted touching he's right exactly and so Ben had said that he'd been really struck by after he posted his piece in the New York Times about the information that Ben had given them on the record all these women, many of whom were survivors of sexual assault, were responding to him on Twitter and saying, oh, my God, I know exactly that feeling of sort of standing and trying not desperately not to be seen. And then when you're called over, trying desperately to put off the physical interaction and that there was this really strange confluence between that behavior, which I think to women is really familiar Um and the, there's this sort of odd experience that it, it seemed to be happening to the FBI director, who's not only the FBI director, but 
for God's sake, is six foot eight. And and white <laughs> and a man. Yes. And I would also exactly. say that I've heard from plenty of people who aren't women that this felt familiar to as far as like sexual assault and sexual harassment, the same kind of stalkery right, right. behavior, that it doesn't necessarily fall strictly along gender lines. We We all should recognize that. But, you know, because Absolutely. we live in a society that we do, women have a particular... Uh, let's just say the odds <laughs> tend to be yes. not in our favor um, when it comes to this kind of behavior. And I was saying that it for me, I don't even think you have to have gone through something that you would identify as meeting a legal definition of assault or harassment. Like this is just what women have to fucking deal with a lot of the time. Right, right, exactly. Um, and I think there there was a really great uh, humor column in the Washington Post um, by Alexander Petri that basically she invented imagined chat logs between Comey and Sessions of Comey trying to, you know, fake Comey trying to strategize with fake Sessions about, you know, a code word or something so that Sessions could come in and intervene so he wouldn't be left alone with Trump. And the joke is that that's a conversation that many people, most of them women, have had with their friends, you know, this this is what I need you to do to intervene if this guy who's been creepy to me comes over, that kind of thing. And of course, the, the... And that it, it, it really does ring true to what actually happened here, which is that Comey, apparently, according to his testimony, was quite angry with Sessions that he had left him alone with Trump. I was going to say that's the real joke, right? Like the not very funny one, which is that, you know, Sessions was a terrible wingman. Like he he just totally left his friend dangling. You know, he was supposed to cock block and he didn't. And that is the kind of man that session is. Um, and I want to just go kind of go through this for people. I mean, it, it screams out at you once you notice it. But I want to go through some other stuff like there is the inviting someone to dinner, implying that it will be a group event and it actually yeah. being just the yeah. two of you. Right. Yeah. Um there, Absolutely. There's the right down to sitting at a small oval table together. Like, right. Sitting, there's the sitting at the small table, and that he specifically notes that the waiters only came in to bring them food yeah. and then would leave. Yeah. Right. So they were very, very dramatically alone in that moment. And then there's the insinuations part of it, because as people who've been on the other end of this know, like it's not very often that the person doing the targeting is super direct in what they're asking for or demanding. Right. Like it's like, well, it would be nice, you know, like I'd like some loyalty, you know, like loyalty is good. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think there's there's a an element of sort of walking right up to the line. Yes, exactly. Saying something out loud and just not quite crossing over that line. I mean, and you saw this in the testimony today where Comey was uh, one of the, the senators, I believe Senator Risch really pushed Comey saying, well, he didn't, he didn't say that he wanted you to drop the Flynn investigation. He said that he hoped that you could let it go. Right. So there's a sort of, there's a very slippery use of language there. Right. Which is not something that, that harassers or, or, or assailants or predators necessarily do consciously. Like, I don't know how much Trump does consciously at all, to be honest. Like, I think he's operating mainly. Yeah, I think he, that's, that's something that we can't really know. <laughs> right. But he, he, he seems to have an intuitive sense for how to do this kind of ugly insinuation and hinting, 
you know, like the also, right. hey, I, I, you like your job. I bet you like your job. There's a lot of other people that would like your job, <laughs> you know, and right. Absolutely. And the only time he gets really specific is another way that this was is like the narrative of a harassment or being targeted, which is that after the target leaves and threatens to turn the tables, what did Trump say? Oh, showboater, nut job <laughs> like that. Right. You know, we, I, I like I, I actually wrote my column about this today, but like he almost said, look mm-hmm. at what he was wearing. You know, it, it, it's it's it, <laughs> well, in the case of the curtain story, it's actually very important. What he was wearing, it, right? He was wearing the blue suit, but he wore a white <laughs> shirt like the hussy that he is. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, if he really didn't want to be noticed, yeah. why didn't he wear all blue? That was like Mark. That was basically, I think, Marco Rubio's John, argument. John Oliver's joke was that he should have dressed himself up as a tree. Uh, then he would have been confused really with Sean wanted. Spicer. This, then, then how we you know well, that would have <laughs> been a problem. Right. So, what else were you were you thinking about when this was happening today? Well, so I think you you saw it in the testimony. There are a few different things you saw in the testimony. The way Comey was grilled, you know, he was asked. Um, and to be clear, I think you know it was legitimate questions to ask to the FBI director. Um, why, you know, if you were so concerned about this, why didn't you tell Trump to back off? Why didn't you react in the moment? That kind of, mm-hmm. those kinds of questions, which I think also, you know, have a very familiar ring to them. And Comey's response was also really interesting. He he kept saying, you know, maybe if I had been braver, mm. I would have, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here to be clear. I don't have this exact words in front of me, but he said, you know, if I, maybe if I had been braver, I would have, you know, said that this is inappropriate, but at the moment I was stunned and I couldn't react. And that too, I think, is is really, really hit, like hits to the core of something that I think is very familiar for a lot of us. Yeah, it te- definitely. Like that whole, I don't even believe this is happening. I'm not sure how to respond. Right, right. And sort of letting Trump believe he may have been assented to. Right. With the right. honest loyalty right. thing, like you, you sometimes tell the person who's targeting you something kind of vague that allows them to believe they've gotten what they want just so you can get out of the room. You know, right. And he described that on uh, on his phone call. I'm not sure which phone call this is, the March 30th or April 11th phone call where he Trump asks whether he can look into lifting the cloud. And Comey says, I'll look into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was asked during his testimony, why didn't you tell him you weren't going to do anything? And he said, essentially, I was just looking for a way to end the call. Yeah, right. And then the the uh, call also to say, I think you're doing an awesome job, which sounds innocent enough on the surface. But again, to anyone who's been through this or, or been with someone who's been through this, there's that uh, I'm checking on you aspect to it. I'm just letting you know. That's interesting. I, I actually hadn't thought of that. But yeah, I mean, I know it's, my impression, again, I have no personal knowledge here, but from what uh, Ben Wittes has written, is that Comey was particularly uncomfortable with that that call, which took place when he was right about to, to get on a helicopter, because it was so, there seemed to be no purpose for it. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, that there's, he took the call because he assumed if the president is calling me, you know, it must be important. You pick up the phone when the president calls. Um, and that it was just very, as you say, sort of like, how are you doing? Think you're doing a great job, that there's this sort of false ring to it. Yeah. And let's 
but we probably should be careful. People pointed out this is obviously not a one-to-one ratio here. Uh, oh, of course. There are huge differences um, in what it costs a person, for instance, uh, to go through this. Um, while Comey has talked about the personal pain he's been through, and I, I'm sure there is some, uh, it's not it's not the same. Um, the the what is taken from you uh, if you're a victim Absolutely. of this is very different. Uh, and also something that struck me as someone who's had to negotiate my feelings of guilt and my feelings of did I did I make this happen? Is it you know was it my fault? Is there was mm-hmm. very relatively little of that from Comey. <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he had a little of like maybe I should have been stronger, but the thing that left right. out to me as a difference was, I think for some people that go through this when when it's a specifically like sexual violation. The, the haunting question is, did I ask for this? Right. And that clearly is not the case here. <laughs> I mean, both in that he doesn't, he didn't seem to express that at all. And that the, you know, the situation is really different in that yeah. way. And that's where I think the, the analogy, as you say, isn't one-to-one because the structure of government is set up so that things like Comey is describing don't usually happen. And when they do happen, they're usually understood by the people within that structure as a massive breach, a massive and alarming breach of a norm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is the opposite uh, of a situation for a person who's put in a situation where they're being preyed on, right? Because the the structure is sort of set up so that it's very easy to fall mm-hmm. into patterns of thinking that, you know, you may have asked for it, that it's very difficult to tell people about it, that kind of thing. So the incentives actually, I think, work in the opposite direction in that sense. Right. And Comey's, um, you know, uh, righteous anger about it, you know, the, the, that sense yeah. of, of I know a norm has been violated and I am going to immediately tell people, you know, that that's a wonderful thing to experience if you are on the sexual harassment side of it or sexual assault side of it. But that's not usually how people respond. They don't feel like they have the institution's backing, you know, whereas Comey right, clearly, right. I mean, he's the director of the FBI. Thank God he had the institution's backing, but um, he could immediately right. go and to that. His, his interactions with Sessions, you know, like I, his frustration with Sessions seems to come from a place of feeling like Sessions was not doing right by his institutional duties, mm-hmm. that it, it was his responsibility to prevent Trump from having these one-on-one conversations with Comey, and he wasn't standing by that responsibility. Yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot lately about how what Trump is doing to us is this, I, I almost want to say systematic because, but again, like we have to be very, I think, it's dangerous to, to attribute, mm-hmm. you know, motivations to Trump. But um, he is doing so much damage to our institutions, right? Yes. That's something I know the lawfare folks are uh, very concerned about. <laughs> yeah, we've been writing about, writing about it a lot. But, like, I just think of it in almost every inst- like American institution you could name. Like, Trump wants to destroy it. Again, uh, careful with my careful with my motives, but he is destroying it. That maybe I just say what's happening. Uh, he undermines institutions on a regular basis. And the law, the institution of the FBI, the institution of the Justice Department, the institution of marriage. I've said, you know, the institution of uh, diplomatic relations. He's just going about that in this way that is. I just had Rick Wilson on, who's a 
never Trump mm-hmm. former. I don't know if he still considers him a Republican, himself a Republican, actually. And we were talking about this and how horrifying it is. And yet it's so difficult to raise the alarm, you know. Right. Right. I mean, I think a lot of it, um, and we've written a lot about this on welfare, is that what's being eroded is it's not often not a question of legal violations, although there's there's been we'll we'll see how the what direction the discussion turns in following Comey's testimony, right? Um there's been a lot of talk about obstruction of justice. That's actually as a technical legal matter is very complicated for a lot of different reasons. Um, But a lot of what Trump is doing that really alarms people is not a question of laws. It's a question of norms. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, the president is completely has, you know, full authority to fire the FBI director, as Comey said, for any reason or for no reason at all. That doesn't mean that it's not an enormous violation of norms for him to do so, Um, you know, and I think that part of the problem is that we're seeing in Congress a lot of the Republicans sort of working who are who are defending Trump or perhaps not coming out directly against him are very making these very narrow arguments that, well, it's, you know, it doesn't constitute obstruction of justice. It's not technically illegal. And I think that's concerning because if these are norms that are being eroded, the defense is political. The defense is Congress. Um, it's a question of political will. And it seems so far that that political will isn't there on behalf of Congress. And it's I, I feel like a broken record in, in a way because I know I'm not I'm not the broken record, but there's a chorus of us. Perhaps that's the right metaphor. But it's so disconcerting that it's Republicans that are not standing up for institutions. <laughs> it's it's strange Right. There's there's a particular component of the conservative movement in America in the latter half of the 20th century that was really, really focused on personal virtue, right, mm-hmm. and civic virtue, and that we needed to sort of inculcate these ways of behaving in the public sphere. And it's it's sort of ironic in kind of a sick way to see to see that movement suddenly where that a lot of the people associated with that movement have ended up is behind Donald Trump, right, who is the person who is eroding those norms of civic virtue and of personal behavior as well. Um, And I really, I I don't know what to think about that, you know. Um, Well, the split screen today, which, you know, not everyone showed, but it was happening in history, if not on television, was Trump, as this is happening, as uh, the former director of the FBI is, is on television talking about explicit malfeasance by the president mm-hmm. calling him a liar not not mincing words on the other the other thing that was happening in washington was trump was speaking to a gathering of evangelicals that's really interesting yeah that's a good point i don't know what to make of it i think i mean some something that i think is important is also that what we see about these interactions i think what what we're picking up on in the way that trump appears to have interacted with Comey and the way that Comey and those who spoke to Comey described those interactions, right? And the parallel between that and people who are victims of sexual harassment or sexual assault is that it's not saying, you know, it's as if Comey was assaulted, right? I don't, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that. But what I do think it shows is that 
the president has a particular way of engaging with people. And that way of engaging with people, it ranges from women. I don't know if I can say the infamous phrase. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, we're 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 an Uh, R-rated podcast. Okay, excellent. You're not a family podcast. (laughs) So, yeah, so it ranges from women who he talks about grabbing by the pussy. When you're a star, they let you do it. To his relationship with the FBI director. And I think what that shows, I mean, it's the old idea that what it's really about is a question of power and exerting power over other people. And that Trump is trying, Trump tries to strong arm people. And Comey shows how that kind of interaction plays out in a context that's not related to sexual harassment, but that nevertheless is very, very charged and very uncomfortable in a lot of the same ways. And I'd say the other way to think of these things as being in parallel or as different choruses of the same, you know, screeching song is that the abuse of power is always obscene. And it is disturbing and it's sometimes hard to talk about. The greater the abuse of power, the more obscene it is and the more uncomfortable we get in drawing attention to it. And and yet the greater imperative there is to speak, right? So. Yeah, well, I mean, in the case of the president, I don't know if it's uncomfortable to speak about the abuse of power. I think a lot of I think a lot of people whose states are politically entwined with the president are finding it uncomfortable, certainly. Um, But in the case of Comey, I'm not sure if it's a question of his being his feeling uncomfortable in terms of not being sure, you know, how people would respond if he spoke about it. He's clearly describing uncomfortable interactions. But I mean, he clearly like he wanted to testify. I don't think he was concerned about what happened if he testified. I mean, he said, you know. I think the direct quote is, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. Yes. Um, right? So again, I think this is this is a situation where, again, it's a little different that because, because there's sort of an existing structure into which Comey slots um, as, you know, the former director of the FBI, he's someone who has a relationship with this congressional committee that he can feel comfortable coming there and saying, these are the norms that you and I care about. These are the norms that have been violated. And I agree that the response to that on behalf of Congress is less horrified than I would hope and you would hope. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the parallel quite holds in terms of it being uncomfortable to speak out against power. And again, just in Comey's case specifically. Right. Although I guess the point where I would say that I feel like that's true is that I've been thinking a lot about Hannah Arndt, you know, And that Mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. the bigger lies you tell, you know, the harder it is to talk about them. And there is something just kind of obscene about what's happening now. And it's 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 hard to get people to see it and and to really talk about it because it's just so extreme. You know, it's not a mild thing. It's it's this it's almost hard to get your head around. I think, you know, that this is happening. Like sometimes I still have that. Like we're running out of time, but I just want to get off my chest because I rarely get to say it out loud. But because sometimes I still have that, oh, my fucking God, Donald Trump is president and he's doing this crazy shit. Oh, I I have that. I I feel like I sort of drift through the day without thinking about it. And then it just sort of like hits me over the head with a two by four every now and then. (laughs) Like this, I am really awake right now. 
Yeah. No, and that's actually, I mean, I don't, again, I don't want to be flippant about our comparisons, but that's <laughs> somewhat it's, what it's like to live in the mm-hmm. aftermath of some kind of, you mm-hmm. know, uh, trauma is that you you go through life not thinking about it because it's too hard to think about. And then every once in a while, you're like, oh, my God, that happened. Yeah. I mean, what I'm thinking about now is the specific sort of literary qualities of Cummings' testimony. There was a really great essay in Slate, I think, by Katie Waldman, where she she was writing about how Comey's, the sort of the very dry, dispassionate tone of Comey's testimony um, his written testimony sort of slots it into this genre of like pulpy Victorian novels like mm-hmm. Dracula, where you have these sort of first person diarists who are, you know, very scientific and are sort of writing their recollections of things and desperately trying to apply a structure of logic and reason onto a world that's sort of turning out to be fundamentally unreasoned and chaotic, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there there is this sort of element of, desperately holding on to these structures that you previously understood to guide the world and that it turns out the world is no longer guided by. And that's why Comey, I think it's really interesting that all this sort of emotional energy is kind of being channeled through this very unlikely figure of James Comey um, because his testimony so perfectly encapsulates that feeling of this is the way that I thought things should work. They're not working that way anymore. I don't totally believe this is happening. And yet at the same time, like I said, I think there's all this emotional energy around him and people like swooning over him, which I get and don't get because he's representing those institutions. Like he is literally, you know, Uh, a representative of the institutions that we hope save us. And they they still can. I think it's a coincidence that he, he used his opening statement to to talk about the FBI, yeah. right? Um, I mean, the, the whole thing is, is kind of fascinating because when I, when I started at Lawfare, everyone was mad at James Comey because he was going around talking about um, going dark and how he was concerned about how end-to-end encryption was going to make things difficult for law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> and those days are just so far in the past now that it's, it's interesting that we've, I think we've sort of, abs- we're so desperate for institutions to save us, as you say now, that I feel like we've kind of abstracted from the specific things that those institutions do, some of which we disagree with, to the sort of, you know, are you in favor of the general existence of the FBI? Yes or no? So I think, yeah. <laughs> it's come to that, really. It right, has. exactly. It's come to that. Okay, that's a good place for us to end. Thank you so much, uh, Quinta. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, and um, perhaps we will check in with you again. Uh, we are big fans yeah, of Lawfare uh, here. Oh, thank you. That's very pod. kind. So you're unofficial, perhaps now official friends of the pod. And excellent. Thanks again. That's that is high praise. Thank you very much. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So. I was actually a Texture user long before they became sponsors of the show. I am a genuine Texture stan because I love magazines. And Texture is basically Netflix for magazines. Uh, It has so many different ones. It's having a magazine stand on your laptop. The Atlantic, Newsweek, Time, Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair. Um, Also lots of design magazines, which I love, but are usually kind of expensive. And also they just kind of sit around, you know, like design magazines uh, kind of tend to stack up. Well, like every magazine does. And texture doesn't stack up. It's, It's just your iPad. 
And it's also great because it's not just breaking news. Uh, we here at With Friends Like These, I can get really caught up in just following what's happening immediately, right? And there's so much to read about what's happening right now. You could just do that. And it's hard to find maybe the stuff that's a little deeper, um, that's not about breaking news, stuff that's about like the story last week we did about Richard Spencer um, that was in The Atlantic or, or The Atlantic's big cover story, which was not pegged to the news at all, but was about a man growing up with a household slave. I mean, you might have seen that on the newsstand, but we don't, I mean, how often do you go to newsstand anymore? Anyway, Texture is normally $9.99 a month, and you get 200 free magazines for that. But if you sign up now, texture.com slash friends, you get a 14-day free trial. Again, $9.99 a month, 200 magazines. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash friends, you get a 14-day free trial. So do it. Texture.com slash friends. Hi, Noah. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I was trying to think about what makes you a little bit different from the other never-Trumpers we've had on. And I think it's that you have some hope or belief or you are encouraged or your project is, don't know quite how to frame it, to nudge hope. him. I think hope is appropriate. Yeah, hope. Sort of a, yes. You yeah, definitely have hope that he can be nudged, which is different than, let's say, you know, Ben Howe and Rick Wilson and and Greg Doucette. They, they I believe, have not. And uh, Bob Inglis also. The, the other people we've had on the show, conservatives, seem to be pretty squarely in the, in the, on the side of like, yeah, we're going to... It's a lost cause, you, yeah. We're going to need to just move on. Um, but I want to talk about this or the nudging. Well, uh, I mean, it's complicated. I, I don't think I'm alone in saying it's even complicated in my relationships with my family, with people I work with. Um, there was a very definitive line between... Uh, you know, conservatives and liberals in the Obama era. And that line has been probably irreparably blurred at this point. Um, and those who adhere to what you call the Fox News line, which um, is sort of more a populist uh, approach to politics, but in general, which describes as tribalist is sort of more appropriate. It, you know, it's um, anything that contradicts the official narrative of the White House in offense to the tribe. And um, so in thus intolerable. And that's sort of where, you know, I come, the, the, the dividing line really is, is that, you know, people who think that, well, he's not the, he's not a, a reputable character. He's a terrible um, moral figure and, uh, and uh, you know, role model. And also he's probably detrimental to a lot of what we want is on one side of the aisle, but also he's the president He's got a Republican Congress. He's the only thing standing between us and the liberal left. And those, <laughs> and those two things are irreconcilable. They you are. You have to make that decision, uh, whether you're going to be uh, with him or against him, and thus with him or against us. And if you define them in those terms, those really stark binary terms, it's not a hard decision. Uh, so I can understand where people like my, my parents during the primary came down. They're, they're a, little, you know, a little more skeptical now. But um, I understand that dichotomy. Uh, I don't agree with it, but I get it. I was going to say, like, I think that you've sort of, you've staked out a area that I, I don't see a lot of other conservatives occupying, actually, which is this sort of, you have a definite moral objection to him, I think. Uh, you did a very full-throated denunciation of the appeal to white supremacy, 
of, um, you know, his uh, nationalism. Uh, I saw all that, you know, cheered with you on that. Um, but you have also, again, I, I guess you're just a cockeyed optimist. <laughs> like, <laughs> unlike a lot of conservatives, I usually conservative, you know, associate conservatives with a pretty jaundiced view of the world. But you have also continued to call for conservatives to come together and 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 promote conservatism. You you definitely identify that Trump is not a conservative, but you want to use this moment as much as you can, right? Right, because it's a fleeting one. Uh-huh. Um, there's only so many uh, you you're lucky if you get two terms uh and this one's looking kind of kind of dicey on that on that front um republicans are in the midst of the most authority and power politically than they've had in almost a century um it's fleeting rare and for republicans you know like a once in a lifetime event but watch it sort of be frittered away as uh republicans a are you know mired in infighting, which is a feature, not a bug, but also because they have a lot of obstacles and roadblocks thrown up in front of them by uh, a president who can't focus on the issues of the moment and is driven entirely by an almost sociopathic need to keep himself in, in the news and to avenge slights against himself. It makes their job that much more difficult. And for Republicans to engage in that game, um, which the president is urging them to do, um, to avenge slights against his his personal, uh, you know, the avenge effrontery, is to lose sight of the mission, and to waste a lot of precious time that we are not going to get back. So yes, when the president does conservative things, cheer him on, encourage it, say we need more of these conservative things. When he doesn't, when he makes himself an obstacle to conservative change, treat him like the obstacle he has become, and be very clear and concise about what that threat represents. Because to do otherwise is to enable him, and I, and I mean that in, in the you know the the sense that A and E's intervention enabling him. He has no bottom, and so he will never change. And we need him to change. And but you you change think he can fast. change though? That's the, and maybe this is where again like this is sort of the place that we part, and that you may part with some other never Trump people. Is that you think that the carrot and stick can work on this man who I think is just he's seventy years old. <laughs> he's, you know, well, not like his personality is going to change. His personality is not going to change, no. uh, and his, you know, his his weird pathologies aren't going to change. But you think he can still be useful? No, I just I think that he he responds to incentive structures, and I think he understands. Uh, he didn't get where he is in 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 this world politically without understanding uh, power dynamics and without understanding incentives. Um, and I think you can create incentives, hard power incentives, that he will <laughs> internalize and understand and adapt to. I, I almost want to just keep arguing with you about whether or not Trump can change because I, that would be fun. Um, but I'm actually more interested, and I think it might be more useful, to return to something you mentioned before, which is the real purpose of this show, which is the ways that politics intersect with our relationships. And you you touched on it really briefly, but I wonder if you would, wouldn't mind talking about it a little bit more, which is that what Trump has done, the Trump phenomenon, and, and having to have an opinion about Trump, what's that done in you're going to maybe this is going to be such a touchy feely way to put it the conservative community well um i think and it wasn't i i i think it's less so on my end than it is on on my other people's ends but um i would for example there was in the primary season uh, i did experience a rift for example with uh, my my family my parents who are as conservative as i was and remain 
Um, but we just, you know, we, we sort of differed over tactics and immediate objectives. And um, the, the utility, the instrumental utility of Donald Trump uh, as the head of this party. And that was something that was jarring to both of us because we are both, you know, both myself, my mom and my dad, because we'd never been on the opposite side of the political spectrum. And uh, it began to feel that way, even though we're both conservatives, we were both Republicans. I'm no longer a registered Republican, um, but I more identify with that party than I do Democrats and always will. Um, so the, the, while these the rifts were kind of superficial, that they existed at all was itself sort of a jarring moment. Um, and I imagine I'm not alone there. I, there were probably quite a few people who are, and I bet this is a generational thing too, because people who are more my age on the very pale end of the millennial spectrum, born in 1981, uh, I imagine that there are a lot of people who are millennial conservatives who identify as conservatives who will never come to terms with this president because of how he represents generational considerations that are just irrelevant to people like me, and also because of his moral, ethical failings and his inability to um, even you know, mimic uh, conservatism as we understood it. So the the failure of people who we admired in the conservative movement to adhere to what we understood to be conservative principles was a betrayal uh, of a Shakespearean proportion. Mm-hmm. We were unable to to reconcile that and remain hurt by it. And similarly, I imagine people like my parents who expected us to uh, adhere to the line, to toe the line that we had you know been raised with. Having abandoned it was equally a, uh, a shock and a, a shame, a source of shame. So it sort of goes both ways. Uh, but those bonds are gradually repairing as, uh, you know, we're, we're all starting to, re- to revert to the mean mm. a little bit. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's a, a permanent fissure, at least not on my end. But uh, it was real at the time. You know, it was surprising to me because, you know, obviously my in-laws are, are more of your parents' generation than, than mine. Um, I'm a little bit older than you, but uh, I was surprised. And you sort of mentioned this when we talked about moral failings, but I was legitimately pretty shocked that the Access Hollywood tape did not do more damage with older Republicans. Like, that seemed like something that people who were more I don't know how to frame it, like genteel, more concerned with manners, more concerned with, you know, how people, how you treat other people, like the, you know, uh, moving around in the world. I expected that to make have more damage among older Republicans, but it didn't. Well, I mean, at the time, it was incredibly damaging politically, uh, just because of the number of people who were otherwise supportive of this candidacy, who now remain super supportive. I mean, they're down the line. Yeah. Republicans. They abandoned him and told him to to quit the race. Hugh Hewitt told him to quit the race. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it was a, it was an earthquake when it happened. Uh, but you know, we've come. We're now in this period of political political news cycles where news cycles are are born, live an entire life, and die uh, in a much shorter period than they used to. And that that Access Hollywood news cycle just didn't last. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't long before we had the Comey letter and we were back onto the Hillary news cycle. And it's just incredibly that was just a news cycle, you know, like. I mean, I think, you know, we still talk about Bill Clinton <laughs> and that was, in fact, the, the defense that was used. I still have my problems with Bill Clinton, you know, that um, was an effective counter messaging strategy. 
And because we're talking about moral failings, we're not talking about we're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about just a news cycle. We're talking about a failing or a, a crime, potentially, you know. Correct. And, and it stuck with people like me. Uh, and I think it stuck with everybody. But your ability to, you know, compartmentalize this sort of thing is is, you know, relative to your ability to be a, a forthright member of this tribe. We have people like Dennis Prager, who spent his entire career proselytizing about morality and the necessity of being a moral person. And now he's out there telling everybody, though, well, I never advocated for moral politicians. <laughs> That's right. Quote. Well, the whole evangelical movement got behind him. And yeah. And here's the evangelical thing. A real quick point on oh, that. Oh, please. I think <laughs> yeah, a lot of people would be I, very interested for, for an explainer on that one. Because I'm not an evangelical, um, but I do know some. And their worldview, while you can argue with it, say it's wrong, uh, baseless, uh, self-deluded, is nevertheless their worldview. And that is that evangelical Christianity is facing existential threats. Mm. And I don't mean just here in the United States where there are, you know, there's the, the dominant cultural forces look down on this sort of thing. I mean, in places like ISIS held territory in the Middle East where they're genociding Christians. They really genuinely see that as an existential threat. And it's not 100% baseless. And when they see somebody who's meeting the cultural threshold that they require as somebody who's defensive of their position in the world, their their very existence, then they're they're willing to make compromises all over the place. Yeah, I mean... And whether you can say that's wrong, and I do, um, but it's not entirely... No, I, I understand. And also, I mean, Gorsuch, 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 right? I mean, like that will be, I've been saying we need a new, a new meme, um, which is the instead of the but her emails uh, over the rising floodwaters, it would be Gorsuch. Because <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you got. You definitely got that. <laughs> but I've argued that's the minimum expectation of a, of a Republican president to look at a, a, a list of names and choose one. He successfully did that. And it looks like he may have successfully done that with the FBI uh, director nominee, too, who some who smart people are saying is not terrible. So that is our right. bit of breaking news on and the it, show. In the case of Gorsuch, I mean, this wasn't a cost free proposition. The the amending of minority privileges in the Senate is something Republicans will come to regret. Maybe mm-hmm. not today, maybe not two years from now, probably four years from now, definitely six years from now. Those yeah. things won't be there when we need them. Um, so Republicans have, uh, and will make a whole lot of compromises along the way. So it's not as though that this was a, was, was a victory without cost. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole, that, that is the Trump presidency in a nutshell is a, a victory with tremendous costs. Uh, so right. you actually know the other reason why I asked you on besides to, to chat about your personal tribal affiliations, um, which is to talk with a listener who wrote in. So welcome to the show, Jenna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And what did you want us to help you out with today? I wrote like a question out in a very, so it's more um, compact than my initial statement. So I can read that off for you. Okay. So one of my closest friends of over a decade and I uh, disagree on politics and we always have, but it's never been an issue in our relationship. But since the beginning of the election cycle, we both have been moving further and further away from the middle and it has drastically impacted our relationship. We are now unable to have polite political conversations and this has effectively ended our relationship. 
I know that I have other friends who struggle with these same issues in their lives, and it's disturbing to me to see the trend our nation is taking. I've never felt less secure about the fate of our country than I do right now. Instead of coming together to work on our issues, we are alienating each other, name-calling, and being as petty as possible. My main question is about moving forward. How can our country return to a place where we are moderates who disagree, but can still have civil conversations that lead to productive policy? It seems like each side is just out to attack the other and to win at all costs instead of trying to positively affect change. I'm at a loss for how to enact these changes and where to even start now that everything is so divided. Thank you. Noah, do you have a follow-up question? Uh, I do. Jenna, are you an active social media user? I am. How active yeah. would you say is active? <laughs> Every day, multiple times a day? Um, I peruse it more than I use it, I suppose. Um, so I'm always active on Twitter, but I don't necessarily tweet. <laughs> okay, um, but I, here we go. I this do is... follow a lot. I sense where this may be going from Noah. Yeah. Uh, Twitter is terrible. <laughs> it's a bad place for bad people. <laughs> I say this as a very frequent user of this service. It is not reflective of the real world, especially when it comes to political discourse. There are, the incentive structure on Twitter is to be as big of a jerk as possible because that's where you get the food pellet. The food pellet drops down for you if you're uh, uncompromising, irrational, rude, and posturing for the uh, effect of your audience and not for actual dialogue. So while there are problems in the real world, they are not like Twitter. Uh, we are geographically sorting into different regions, which are much more uh, partisan than they used to be. People are seeking out people of their own uh, quote-unquote tribe, and political identification is becoming much more central to our personal identity than are things that used to be uh, the focus of our identity, our job, um, our our religion, our ethnicity, that sort of thing. Um, But that all being said, Twitter is not like the real world. It's much worse. So, you know, I'm not sure if it's reflective of the rest of the nation and how far a field we've come from the, the days of yore when we were all working together towards the same grand cause. And I can, I understand that. And I, and I obviously self-admittedly follow who I want to follow on Twitter and, you know, Facebook, of course, you know, um, and even on Facebook, it's, it, you know, the heated arguments happen and that's person to person more than on Twitter. So I guess that, you know, I don't use Facebook as much, I guess, anymore, but you see it there too. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. SeatGeek is a smart and easy way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets, and they help you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. And there is nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will help you get closer to the action for great value. But let me tell you why I like SeatGeek. It's because it's on your phone. I mean, a theme here, it's true, but you guys are listening to a podcast on your phone, so you probably do a lot of things on your phone, and this app is for you. Because another thing that the phones have enabled us to do is be a little bit forgetful. I mean, I I was maybe forgetful before I had a phone, but um, SeatGeek allows me to not have that panicky feeling when I leave the house that I am very used to as an old person who used to go to concerts uh, where are the tickets. Uh, uh, where are the tickets? In fact, so used to that, that um, my husband used to do that joke with me all the time where we would leave the house and be like, oh, do you have the tickets? And I would panic because of course I didn't have the tickets because I never have the tickets. With SeatGeek, you have the tickets. 
Every purchase is also fully guaranteed, so you can shop with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports to concerts to comedy to theater. And actually, I just read that, and I didn't know they did comedy. I will be looking up some uh, some comedy shows, I think, because we need the laughs. SeatGeek, uh, my listeners will get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase, so download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code FRIENDS. Again, that's promo code FRIENDS for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase and never worry about losing your tickets again. So I actually have a different sort of take on this than Noah. Like, I don't disagree that the internet is terrible as someone who's, you know, made my living off the internet since its early days. Um, I'm fully implicated. I also think that there is an incentive structure for kindness on the internet sometimes. I've experienced it. So, but we won't argue that point right now. I'll just grant Noah's point that um, things often seem worse on the internet than they do in real life. But I want to call attention Noah's attention to the fact that she did call in with a real world example of real a real in-person meet space friend who she is, you know, now estranged from. And you and I were talking earlier, like I have, you know, my in-laws that I have to negotiate a relationship with and you have your parents that you have to negotiate a relationship with. So I do think that there's we need to take some care to not say like this is solved by like getting off the Internet, because I from what I can tell from people writing in too that this this is a real thing in people's, you know, physical, textual relationships. Right. Like, I mean, I can't I cannot think of a friend in my immediate circle that does not have this issue in their own life in some way. Yeah. And I think it's worse that, online. That's sure. Real. But it's, yeah. it's real. Oh yeah. And I'm not discounting it as a, as a real phenomenon. Uh, I am just cautioning that we shouldn't necessarily apply it too broadly to the grander population outside of, you know, our, our daily experiences, because I, uh, you know, while we're talking about anecdotes, I don't experience partisan sorting when I go out in the real world and engage in other people who are, you know, either Trump's Trump supporters objectively or diehard Trump supporters or Trump skeptics or diehard anti-Trumpers. I mean, I, I while it's a significant dividing line culturally, uh, I don't see it as the uh, causus belli for Civil War II. Uh, I don't necessarily think that this is something that is going to shade the interactions of, uh, of Americans, you know, to the point where we can no longer engage with one another civilly or work together on common purpose uh, objectives. I, I, I just I caution that we shouldn't overly interpret what this means. I, I, I'm with you to a point. Um, I just want to say this. Things do seem different. Like I'm are you no, are you in D.C.? No, I'm in the I'm in the New York excerpt. OK, well, it's still very you're coastal like and Jenna, where are you actually? Um, I'm in I'm in Detroit. OK, so, yay, fellow Heartlander, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm seeing this in my real world, you know, a, you know, geographic location outside of the coast. I'm seeing it's different than it used to be. It's definitely feels different. Like divides existed before, but there is something that's happening in people's real life relationships, not just online. And maybe the problem is it's it's imitating online. And I do think that one step for a lot of people could be kind of like doing your, you know, regular digital cleanse. But I want to ask Jenna a specific question, which is that you you started out with an anecdote about your friend and this unfortunate estrangement. 
And then you kind of ended your question about more of the country moving forward. I think those things are definitely related, though, both in, as problems and as solutions. And so my question to you is, do you want to try and revive that friendship? Is that a, is that something that you are interested in? Or are you just I like, mean, I, let's I've move on from there? Tussling, I've been tussling with that since the election has been over, I suppose. Um, we've had, I guess, January is really the last time we had any sort of conversation and it didn't end well. Um, and I mean, I, I know that regardless, like we've been friends for over a decade, like regardless, if I, if something major happened in one of our lives, we would be there for each other. Right. I mean, that's, that's how it goes, but do I have any sort of I don't really know if I have a desire at this point to continue a day-to-day or a any sort of friendship where we would grab drinks together. To, to me, that's a different... Is that love there? Absolutely. I would, you know, walk through a wall if she needed me to for whatever reason. But uh, the day-to-day friendship, I think it's just a different friendship now. And I don't, I don't know, I guess is the answer on how I feel about about moving forward. And it's not specifically, and I think this is another point I want to make, it's not specifically just because she voted for Trump. It's it's her other actions that have spoken louder since then. And I can get into that too. It's not necessary. I don't know if it's completely necessary, but um, I, I know that this election has changed me. I'll be the first one to admit that. Um, it really has. I've become a, a different person. And you know, it could be she has as well, or she could be the same and I've changed. And that's why our relationships changed. I don't, I don't know. Um, so I'm still kind of trying to reconcile that in my own mind. Well, the first thing I want to say is that love is more important than like. So right. I think that's a lot. And that's, that's huge. In fact, that you still are able to say that you care for her so deeply and that you would walk for, through a wall for her. And I, I, I believe you. Of course. I mean, some things are more important, right? And right. I, no. And I, and I think that, that having that value is where maybe some of the optimism that Noah was talking about comes from, right? Which is that as long as we all still will walk through walls for each other or some of us will walk through walls for each other, <laughs> we're going to be okay, right? Are there specifics here or is there policy disagreements or is this just cultural? So... This is so for our whole lives, we've she's always been right and I've always been left. And we've never had we've always been able to discuss policy and it's been civil and we can talk and we can disagree and that's okay. Um and it's it's never been an issue with us until this election cycle. Um and now it's become more personal. Um she has expressed viewpoints that I didn't know she had and that I think that they are rooted in racism and sexism and xenophobia. So I um, didn't know she had these viewpoints and she made a point very, very early on in the election cycle. I think almost immediately after he announced his candidacy that she very much enjoyed that he was not politically correct and that he could say whatever he wanted and that was a great thing. And while I understand the concept behind that, I disagree with how he did it. Um, and so it became personal as opposed to being about policy. 
it always was about policy and then it became personal. And I think that's really where our discrepancies started with this election cycle. So the reason why I think it's important that we kind of identify and celebrate that you still love her and care for her and and would do whatever she needed uh, if she was in trouble um, is because that is, like I said, sort of where the rest of the healing comes from, I I believe. And I also believe, though, and this is, you know, up to you, um, but if that's still there, there may come a time when it might be a good idea to to reopen a more normal kind of like friendship with her. And I say that because, you know, I don't think people's minds get changed if we don't um, they don't people's minds don't change because we argue with them. People's minds change because we live with them. Right. There was a, uh, a pretty, um, I think, incisive column recently by uh, National Review's Jonah Goldberg, who uh, identified. I can't believe you put all those words together in a, in a sentence, but go ahead. <laughs> very bright guy. Um, the lifestyleization of politics, which right. is something we were talking about right. earlier, which is how you identify your identity is bound up mm-hmm. in your right. political affiliation. And so you can't have a disagreement without being attacked because that's right. your identity. This is you. Right. How can you have a policy disagreement unless you're talking about your? This is my deeply, my most deepest held conviction. Um, right. That's not healthy, uh, and it's it's one of the reasons why we we do have uh, something of a, of a civil discord problem right now. Um, and uh, so, so so yeah, I, I'm I'm of the impression that there is something different here, and it's not just it's something that began. Uh, well before Barack Obama or George W. Bush, but exacerbated over the course of those uh, presidencies where we began to identify tribally with our political uh, affiliation and not just see it as a, a means to uh, you know, affect some sort of a political end or a, a, a policy end. Yeah, I think right. that there's something to be said, and this is how we, this is again, I, I think it's important for you to think about this friendship with this woman because although you asked in the end about healing the nation, the nation gets healed through these one-on-one relationships. You know? Right. And because, you know, my experience with my family, my husband and my in-laws is that, well, especially with John, right? I am, John is, will never change his mind because of something that I said to him. Right. He might change his mind because something he heard me say. <laughs> <laughs> But the people we really care about actually are the ones we have the least shot at convincing right. through an argument, right? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like this woman sort of counts on that level because you have such a history together and you do care about each other. There's like right. – there's no way you can just talk about politics. You're just too close, you know? Right. And I also feel like there may be a need for a cooling off period, it sounds like, you know? Like, and that's, I mean, I'm kind of – I mean, there was some pretty insensitive comments that yeah. were made to me about my religion in January, which is why we haven't really had any sort of discussion since. And I think I personally just needed a period to step back and and figure out what it means to me in a friendship, you know, and, and just go from there. And right. yes, I think just cooling off and being like, okay, let's all, because you're right. I mean, I do, I'm, I was probably pretty moderately liberal before this election. And now I'm like, just liberal. Like here I am. I'm a liberal. And and that's <laughs> and, and and it it just happened, right? I mean, and I, I think she probably went the other way too. And and I I will be the first to admit I've made blanket statements about Republicans and you know that might not be fair, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that's what's been happening over and over again. And now it's like this us versus them mentality. And that's where we are. And, and I think that's sad in a lot of ways. And I, and you're right, like Twitter is not the place to go if I want to find people that are going to be bipartisan, <laughs> but it's, um, but it is real in in our lives, I think at this point. So, and I think, you know, more than ever, like I said, I, I identify as a liberal Democrat and I think more and more she's identifying as a Republican and that's becoming the core of who we are. And um, that is kind of unfortunate, right? I'm so much more than that. And so is she, obviously. And so are all my family and friends and everyone I know in my social circles. We're more than a Bernie supporter, a Hillary supporter, a Trump supporter, Ted Cruz supporter. Like we're more than those people, but that's who we've become. And it's and it's connecting on those other levels where you might have a shot at at least understanding each other on an ideological level. You know, right. Um, I want to be real clear that if she said something that was super deeply offensive and personal, I'm not going to endorse like forgiving her and just like wholeheartedly unless you feel like you can and want uh-huh. to. Right. Like people say shit that's really bad. Like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't it's not an unforgivable. Offense. I, just <laughs> okay. I think it was in, insensitive. OK. Um, with the with the current climate. <laughs> right. Um you know, so no, I mean, and, and I don't know, I don't think it was malicious. I just um, think this whole election cycle got to all of us in different ways. Yeah. And no, I'm actually curious just from on your side, you know, you talked about not living in a um, ideological silos yourself. You, you, do you have uh, liberal friends? Yeah. So um, I don't have friends period, <laughs> because I have two little kids. A two-year-old and a, and a nine-month-old, and I don't, I don't see people. I see my wife. So their um, kids are liberal for sure, though, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're nanny status. They're Bernie bro, little Bernie bro. Well, no, they're definitely <laughs> like they're for the nanny state. I mean, that's for sure. Correct. Yeah, literally, yeah. <laughs> literally the nanny. Um, if we could afford it. Uh, yeah. So I came up in the theater. I I was a performing artist. I went to college on a performing arts scholarship. I I spent my life backstage and on stage. So I grew up in in liberal circles, um, and my political maturation occurred after 9-11, where I wanted to get into the news cycle, abandoned my scholarship, and started working in news talk radio. I was already conservative at that, but I was much more interested in national uh, geopolitics and the conduct of, uh, of American national affairs. And from there, I, uh, I managed to weed my way back into the academic circles and found um, the intellectual vacuity of the left in the Bush era so off-putting that it it, it ended up uh, compelling me to adopt a much more conservative stance on issues related to domestic politics. But all of the relationships that I formed in the period before I was 28 um, were generally um, center-left or left. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, that's and that's where I spent most of my life in my political career is being the token conservative at um, media sites like Mediaite and Campaigns and Elections Magazine and uh, a now defunct site called Ology where I ran the politics department. Um, these were my role was to communicate as best I could conservative positions to a liberal audience. Uh, so that's, mm-hmm. that's my background. I mean, I think it's important to have the cross communication. I'm not discounting that at all. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. And it's just sometimes I actually think it's someone like um, Noah being the token conservative at a liberal site like that can be more helpful than actually talking to your conservative friend, you know, I yeah. mean, about politics. That also didn't win me any friends in the in the red meat sphere. I mean, <clears throat> one of the one of the cr- um, critiques of my career from people like my mom and my <laughs> wife is that you is that you you make yourself the writer's writer, right? Like you don't have a very large audience. Um, and, and it's because you're not chumming up the waters. You don't throw a lot of red meat out there. You don't, you don't gratify people with what they want to hear. Um, and that, as a result, is a self-limiting. That's true. Um, my audience is smaller than, I'd say, a lot of uh, other red meat writers on the right. Um, but the audience is much more uh, influential because the people who are in this business don't want to hear that sort of thing. So right. the writer's writer attracts you know, like-minded people, and even though it's a smaller group, um, it's still nevertheless the, the group that is the most influential when it comes to defining American political discourse. So, uh, you know, again, going back to social media, the broad swath of the population who engages in that sort of thing is posturing for as broad an audience as they can, and the incentives there are to be as much of a jerk as possible. Um, but that's, that's just not how it is, you know, in the professional world. Noah, you talked about coming from the theater uh, to politics mm-hmm. and and. and after 9-11, becoming more conservative. And I'm curious, though, if there's ever anything since you've become more conservative that you've changed your mind on to a more liberal direction. I mean, I would say I have, although I kind of struggle to think of the specifics there. (laughs) Um, You know, I just don't know. And maybe it's because the the sorting of these last couple election cycles has made it so that um, the the divisions, the, you know, the, the narcissism of small differences, the divisions are really kind of modest. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, they feel really gigantic chasms that prevent us from coming together on things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I've always kind of been a squishy Republican. So, <laughs> you know, I guess I <laughs> I guess I come back and forth on on certain things. But I've always been kind of a, a, an, a obnoxious, as this sounds, a moderate. I hate that term. But it is, you know, nevertheless the case, and that was always, you know, that was always the critique of me from people on the right. So I, you know, I, 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 I struggle to think of specifics. You could throw some at me, and I might find one, but I just, I, I forget it. Well, I'm going to choose to find an optimistic note to end on in that, um, which is that you, at least in theory, <laughs> can be swayed, um, or not swayed, but actually just come to some uh, different and perhaps more liberal um, point of view. Uh, in theory, in theory, that is true. And I'm going to offer you to that, Jenna, as a maybe you can have some some influence or maybe just uh, some yeah. kind of coming together with your friend. And I do think I want to say again, like you asked about the state of the world and the state of the country. But the way that that changes is through the kinds of relationships that you already have. Yeah. And I, I will say to end as well, like I I've like I said before this. Um, election cycle began, I considered myself moderate as well, um, just a little more left-leaning. And I've always, always been open to discussions on any type of policy, um, economic, foreign, domestic, you know, and and just in talking about that and agreeing to disagree or, or changing my mind even or changing someone else's mind. But for me, my hard lines have been the the words that have been being used mm-hmm. and how we talk to one another. And I think that's really where I'm not willing to compromise. I'm not willing to compromise on how we speak to each other 
and use the language we use when we talk to each other. I'm not just talking about my friend and myself. I'm talking about overall. And yes, on Twitter and yes, on Facebook. But even in the world, I mean, you, we see these viral videos, obviously. But the way we talk to each other, it needs to be polite and it needs to be caring and loving. And I think that's where I'm not willing to budge. And that's where I really have to draw my lines. So that was my final thought. I guess. <laughs> well, I just want to echo your final thought then. What, but I agree. And that's again, though, where that's where we in our relationships can model that, right? Because right. what I've found with my conservative friends, when I see them get carried away on Twitter or on TV, um, I will sometimes poke my head and I will slide into their DMs and be like, hey, dude, you know, I'm one of those people you're talking about. Right. And that has been an effect that has been and when I say effective, it's almost I don't mean effective in the sense I'm trying to change minds. I actually just mean like in reminding them, you know, we're in this together and you and I actually see each other (laughs) in the real world and like each other. So you going off on the un-American paid protesters, you know, you might want to remember that, like, we had a drink together last week. And, right. Yeah. I, I'm and tempted I think- to say that <clears throat> these divisions are exacerbated by the fact that everything is cultural affect and posturing. We're not talking about any real serious policy right now, which I, I, my mind has a moderating effect. But then I think back to the health care debate in 2009, 2010, and the extreme positions where, oh, you Republicans just want poor people to die really quickly, and, oh, you liberals want to regulate everything I do in my daily life, and uh, that sort of thing was what got play. So it's like the problem here is that people who are polite and nice are boring. They don't get play. <laughs> right. It's Which is true. why I can never be on TV, I suppose. But most of us aren't on TV, thank God, right? right. So sure. this is actually, again, we're, and it's the people that aren't on TV that are going to change the world. So, right. Um, I mean, it's hopeful. I, it is hopeful. And I think we need to, as a society, stop making these blanket statements like all Republicans, all Democrats all you, all of them, you know, this us versus them mentality is very dangerous. And I think, you know, just keeping it as personal, like, this is how I feel. I'm not going to speak for anyone else. And this is how I feel in this situation. I'm not even going to speak for my friend who's sitting right next to me, who feels the same, who I know feels the same way about her, but she has her own, as me, but she has her own voice and she can use that voice if she wants to. So I think it's important to stop making blanket statements, like you said, <laughs> especially in positions of power, and just covering, you know, an entire population of people with negative words is very dangerous. Well, speaking for myself, Jenna, I think you're correct. Noah? Yes, that's an ideal. It's an ideal to live up to. All right. Unfortunately, most of us don't meet it. But <laughs> that was a general statement. Noah, that was a general statement. Damn it. <laughs> I'm not Many statements that are blanket statements in my life. But. Well, my blanket statement for the now to, to wrap this up is that I enjoyed talking to you both. I enjoyed talking to you guys as well. All right. Same here. Well, that's it for the show. Thanks, as usual, for making it to the end of the podcast. If you are interested in following any of our illustrious guests on Twitter, they are all on Twitter. Uh, Noah is at Noah C. Rothman. That's N-O-A-H-C-R-O-T-H-M-A-N. Quinta Jurassic is at Q 
Jurecic, which is Q-J-U-R-E-C-I-C. And Rick Wilson is at the Rick Wilson, which I will not spell for you because it's at the Rick Wilson. The show is at crooked underscore friends. And of course, we have an email, which is with friends like pod at Gmail. And please write with your own questions about politics and relationships or relationships and politics, uh, some mix of the two. We will be doing uh, listener, you know, questions uh, whenever we can. I think it's, um, it seems like it's a time when people need to talk about this stuff and we want to offer a safe space to do that. And I guess I want to add something on a personal note. This week was hard. I don't know if it was the Comey testimony that had such strong echoes of abuses of power that I've seen in my life. I don't know if it was the alignment of the stars, but it was hard for me. And I think it was hard for other people. I've been thinking a lot about normalcy and As someone in recovery, early on, I kind of rediscovered normalcy. I felt good about normalcy. I celebrated taking out the trash and paying my bills and brushing my teeth because it was all kind of new. It was like the first time I'd done any of that sober, right? And discovering the joy of just doing normal things was really important to me. And I really, I can't explain to you, like my heart used to lift a little when I was writing checks to the gas company because that was just a normal, responsible thing to do. And I'd been through a lot of the stuff that was uh, not normal. But lately, as I go through my normal everyday activities, I have been thinking about what it will mean to do normal things if things around me continue to be abnormal. I've been thinking about brushing my teeth and knowing, say, they're in internment camp somewhere or paying my bills and knowing that the police are locking up, you know, uh, drug addicts at rates that they had stopped doing before. Um, then because I read a lot of dystopian science fiction, I can imagine even worse things, I guess. And all the while kind of picturing myself doing something really quotidian as it's happening. I talked to a friend of mine about this and how I felt almost this preemptive guilt. How can I just keep doing normal things when so much that's happening is abnormal and terrifying? And she told me to hold on to what's normal, that it's not oppressive or bad to celebrate the small things in my life that make me feel human because it's important right now that we all feel human. And those normal things are what connect us. So 
That is the thought I'm going to leave you with this week. It's the normal things that connect us. Thanks. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best – 